But if you're new here, we're glad to have you. If you happen to be watching online, we're glad that you're here too. Uh, for anyone who is new here, feel free to talk to us after. Come talk to us. Let us get to know you. There's some forms under your seats that you're welcome to fill out too. That way we've got a way to contact you and talk to you. You can put those forms just in the box in the back. For True Life, for our members here, let's keep being a family. Let's keep being in worship together. Let's not allow, allow that to end with, this, with the music. Now, uh, the elders, for whatever reason, thought it wise and allowed me to come before you all to speak the word this morning. So I'm going to do my best to honor them in that, honor the Lord. So after I was assigned and given the opportunity to come and preach this morning, I started thinking, what is true life used to hearing? What makes a good Jimmy Inman sermon? And <laughs> it occurred to me there are three core parts to this. And if Jimmy were a chef, you would have the main, the main part of the meal. You would have the meat, the pasta, whatever it would. It would be a healthy dose of the word, King James, or New King James style. And that's not all of it, though. I realized if you look at Jimmy M. sermons, Pastor Jimmy has two other core parts to this. Along with the big dose of the word that's being expounded, you have two seasonings. You've got a lot of one and a little bit of the other. And if you look at a Jimmy Inman sermon, you will find a very long, up to two paragraph quote from Tim Keller. <laughs> yes, you will find where he spends 60, 70 words explaining what the point that Jimmy's making and helping give some light and shed a little more truth on it. But that's not it. Because later on in the message, you will find where Craig Rochelle jumps in <laughs> and says all that Tim Keller did in about six or seven words. And if you are missing any of those parts, it's not a Jimmy Inman sermon. <laughs> now, unfortunately, I don't have any Tim Keller quotes this morning or Craig Rochelle, but I'm just an intern, so it's okay. <laughs> You'll have to settle for MacArthur and Bauckham today. And actually, I don't even think they made it into these quotes, so we can make it, we might be able to force it in. So for today's text that I was assigned, uh, we're, we're going to be in the book that congregants, have, if you were to give a survey, I imagine congregants would say, okay, I want this book preached the most. But if you uh, took a poll from the pastors, I imagine they would say, I want this book preached the least. And so that's where we find the intern this morning. And so <laughs> we will be in Revelation 2 talking about the church in Ephesus. And so if you all have been missing Ephesians, we will not be quoting Ephesians this morning. So I'm sorry for the letdown. Now, we're at this church in Ephesus, we're going to be looking at a harrowing issue that they face. And I want us to see that it's something that we're all prone to. It's something that we can all fall into. So it's going to be a long time before we actually make it to this text. So we're going to find out that this is a church that has existed for a while now. This isn't a church that just suddenly appeared in Revelation 2. We see the church of Ephesus popping up throughout Scripture, throughout New Testament Scripture anyway. And... So we see this church building, and so I want us to understand the background of this church. I want us to see the atmosphere that goes on with this church so that when we get to the problem they have, we realize, oh, this could happen to me, so that we don't condemn them, but that we're looking inward. And so, like I said, it's going to be a while before we actually read the verses in Revelation 2, but I promise by noon we will be there. <laughs> so we're going to be talking about church this morning, and so there's a couple parameters. There's some guidelines, some rails, a framework I want us to be stuck and kind of limit ourselves into. Otherwise, we can get into some dangerous territory, and I don't want Jimmy getting a bunch of angry emails. 
I'm going to the beach tomorrow, so that would be a bad time for Jimmy to say, hey, that sermon you preached is your last. <laughs> so if you have a problem, just come talk to me after service. <laughs> so first, the first parameter that we're talking about is that we're talking not about the churches out there. We're talking about the church in here as we talk about that. We're talking about true life and its members. We're going to listen to this uh, sermon, not with binoculars to look out there, but with a mirror to our own faces to look back on ourselves. When I'm reading about this church and its problems, and its problems, reading about the Ephesians, the church in Ephesus and its problems, the right response is, oh yeah, that church down the road. No, that's not the right response. It's not going to be, I get that. I know we all know there's groups out there that are meeting just like we are right now that is about as biblically solid as the group at Walmart right now. So we're not worried about those right now. The responsibility I've been given is the group in here, and so I want all of us to be looking inward, focused on ourselves. I mean, as members of the church, let's ask the Spirit to reveal in our hearts if the problems that the members of Ephesus that they faced are members that maybe you or I face. Second, let's reflect on how we're going to talk about the church this morning, because that's just as important. Christ calls his church his what? Bride, right. Now, uh, I see Nathaniel Baird back there. I don't see Brian Myers in here. But if I had biceps like theirs, I would have the handheld mic this morning. <laughs> and you weren't at small groups, so you had an opportunity to say, hey, Ryan, don't do that. <laughs> now, I got an applause for that. <laughs> he had a good excuse. Now, if someone walks over and starts slandering Nathaniel's wife, Brian's wife, I bet that person might get acquainted with their biceps real quick. <laughs> no one's going to slander their wives, and men, I use them as a joke, but isn't that true of us? No one's going to slander or speak against our wives, right? We're going to defend them. We care about their reputation. And church, we're not going to slander the bride of Christ this morning either. A good husband can give someone who slanders his wife a bad day. Remember, Nathaniel, his biceps, bad day. That's all, Nathaniel. I think I'll leave you alone after this until second service. Now, Christ, when he's encouraging his disciples and the Gospels and they're facing an issue, he's like, oh yeah, don't worry about those people. They can only kill you. Worry about the one who can destroy your soul. We're going to be in Revelation. Have you, and we're going to be in mostly just in Revelation too. I'm going to throw in Revelation 17 as kind of like an extra gift, I guess. But... Have you read about Jesus in the rest of Revelation? It's that guy's bride that we're going to be talking about this morning. It's the, we're in the book that shows our Savior, not just as the lamb, but as the lion too. Amen. And so we're not going to make statements about how everything wrong in the world's the church's fault or how everything that's going on is somehow related to the church and how it should have been this or that because I'm not okay with those blanket statements. And with that said, let's look at the background of this church. And you're welcome to turn if you want to Acts 19. We're going to be kind of skimming through verses 23 through 41. I'm not going to read any of the verses directly. It's just that's a section that I'm going to pull some material from that we'll be talking about a little bit here and there. But uh, it, we just don't have time to read through all of that. I would either get to read through all of that or we would talk about that in the background. And so we're going to talk about that in the background instead. But... Feel free to read that later. Feel free to read it along as we're talking about this. But this is the account where Paul arrives in the city of Ephesus to build up a church that exists here. 
And Ephesus, it's a massive city. You'll find it's got, at this point in time, a quarter of a million residents. And statistically, because of how the Roman Empire loves slaves, that's like 180,000 slaves that live there too. This is a big place. And I want us to see that it's a harsh culture that this church exists in too. It's the home of two major religions that Paul's walking into. And neither of them are very happy to coexist with truth once it gets there. The first religion's emperor worship, deified government. Let's worship the Caesars. In this area, Caesar worship was insane. Uh, you could worship whoever you wanted as long as Caesar was the head of that pantheon. As long as you gave that verbal assent of, I believe all this, but oh yeah, Caesar, he's king, he's God too. And then you could go back to living your life. You just had to make that quick assent to the crowds. So you had this emperor cult that had manifest, infested the government, infested all sorts of areas. And it's pretty wild too. So when you read about first century history about these Roman emperors, they had a habit of dying all the time. Very short reigns, getting stabbed, like we have plays about this kind of stuff. And they just didn't last. They would die and there was never a resurrection. They never came back. They couldn't save themselves and yet they were to be treated as if they could save you all, could save them. And so, remember in the gospel, uh, I wanna read my notes here just to kind of pull me back on track. These guys couldn't save anyone, but they thought they ruled the world and wanted every bit of power they could get. Remember in the gospels where we read that Caesar orders a census of the whole world? Rome was a big place, but Rome didn't, take, didn't own the whole world. It just took the whole world to hold Caesar's ego. <coughs> These emperors had incredibly short reigns, as we talked about. But there is a title that these emperors were fond of that uh, with the cult that lives in Ephesus, that with the uh, push that some places in the Roman Empire had read that once a year, there was this public profession that you would have to say that Caesar is Lord. But there is another title that when you, it turns out when you dive into these letters to Ephesus, or not to these letters in Ephesus, but in the commentaries, look at these other works that the uh, fanatics in Ephesus liked to refer to Caesar as, and that was Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Did that make anyone else uncomfortable? And if it did, let's remember, we still worship one as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And the other guy, the, the Caesars that gave themselves the title, because remember the father gave the son that title, but uh, when it came to, excuse me guys, I'm sorry about that. Yes, when it comes to Christ, we still call him today, 2,000 years later, Lord of Lord and King of Kings. But when it comes to Caesar, we don't call him that. He's just a symbol for cheap pizza now. <laughs> but I wanted to tie that in closer to, closer to today, just to remember that all the problems, because I want us to see as we go through the background of this church, that the issue this church possibly faced is one that we can face. But all the same trials that this church went through are trials that the church 2,000 years later is still going through that every event, every encounter, everything going on here in Scripture is always still just as relevant today. Like when we look to communist China, we still see these, the same idea of this cult playing out. We see churches being demolished when they find the secret churches that meet. For the churches that are sanctioned, you don't find crosses in those churches. You don't find the layout like you would here. You find pictures of the Chinese leaders there. And so as I use them for an example, let's also remember to keep them in our prayers too. The other major religion that we find in Ephesus that was constantly beating against the church was that of Artemis worshipers. This area was the center of Artemis worship. See, there was this meteorite that had fallen, and they went and found this meteorite there in Ephesus. And if you kind of 
tilted your head right and squinted just enough. This meteorite looked kind of like a woman. And so they collect, they grabbed this rock and thought, we need to build it a temple. And there's one of the most extravagant temples ever built in the world was constructed here. It was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And so all this dedication, all this love, devotion, worship that should have been given to God was instead given to a rock. And like uh, this temple became a haven, a place, a harbor for all sorts of sin. You'd see prostitution, you'd see other types of sexual sin notably going on there. And so this church lived in the same neighborhood having to debate and battle these same issues, those issues. Uh, we find that when you looked at both religions, like emperor worship, both religions, they offered salvation, but allowed you to pursue whatever sin you want, whatever sexual perversion you wanted. You give a head nod to an idol, and you're considered blessed to do whatever evil you wanted. Religion that was almost secular because they really just kind of revolved around you with a few extra steps. They had enough mysticism to soothe the conscience, just not enough to control sin, only to allow you to indulge in it. Toss a few coins, mystical thoughts, and pursue whatever thought lust you want. YOLO, right? Like today's religion, like humanism and so on, you do not like what the real God says about your rebellion to him, and so we sim just simply make another. One who's like yourself, or if you're just humble enough, one who looks like you and someone else instead of yourself. This is the setting Paul is preaching in, and this church exists in that, some, uh, in that area. Like I said, by noon, we'll start preaching on it. And in this passage in Acts, we see that there's a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who makes great money by making idols for Artemis worshipers. When Paul came through preaching Christ, showing that idols made by hands, it turns out, aren't real. People were believing. They were responding to the gospel. They were seeing truth for the first time, being enlightened, having salvation. What they had only grasped at before in darkness, they finally found, like us. They'd saw the truth. And so Demetrius, he saw he was making idols, and so it threatened his business. And so he feigned piety for Artemis, bringing a zealous, mindless crowd. And I use mindless carefully because that's the wording used in the passage when you find out the crowd's there, and they're like, wait, we're not even entirely sure why we're here. We're just angry. So, again, so, but before you think this is any different than today, because I want us to see that everything that happens here are things that can happen today. Let's see that when we share the gospel, people are shown that there is inherent worth. You have worth, inherent value. You have a need to return from sin, and it still brings out Demetrius's today. Like Demetrius, who pretended to be a friend of Artemis to protect his pocketbook in the same way that like, examples like Planned Parenthood today pretends to be a friend to women. History has always had Demetrius's who will slander Christ for a dollar. So let's remember and never think that that doesn't happen to Christians here today or throughout history. We see a battle going on there. We see a conflict of self-love over love for God. When we look at this riot going on in Ephesus that you're welcome to read about later in Acts 19, we see another group. We see unbelieving Jews present who stir up the crowd who are protecting their own interests. And so we see the Artemis Worshippers trying to stir up the crowd. We see the unbelieving Jews stirring up a crowd, and we see that both of them, neither of them have a care of to figuring out what's actually true, figuring out who God really is. Both of them are just there for a self-love, a self-preservation, a self-care for their own interests. So with Luke's account, we see that this church here in Ephesus, before we even begin reading about it in Revelation, faces extreme violence from the world that surrounds them. While these other religions are happy to coexist, they turn to violence once truth's there. And so now let's look at the, uh, the challenges that this church faces inside of its walls. This isn't just 
an issue going on outside. And so, Aaron, if you would pull up the verses for 1 Timothy 1. Now we'll read those because I forgot to bring my Bible up here. And so, 1 Timothy 1.3 says, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, and this is Paul talking to Timothy right here, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Verse 4, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause dispute rather than godly edification which is in faith. Verse 5, now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from a sincere faith. Verse 6, from which some have strayed, turning, having turned aside to idle talk. Verse 7, since it's up there, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they, are, what they say nor the things which they affirm. Sorry, I've been reading this in a different version, so it's kind of hard to jump. Because it's like, I almost got this, and then there's a word change. So that's fun to deal with. Lots of new things to learn this morning. So, not only does Acts show us that there are all kinds of waves beating against the church outside of its walls, but when we look inside, when we look inside the church itself, and when I'm saying church and I'm saying walls, I am still referring to the group of people. I'm talking about the body of believers, because I don't think they actually had a place to go really meet at this time. These were homes they were meeting in. Uh, Actually, that's what we see in Acts, that it's homes they're meeting in. But here, as they have these walls beating inside, we find that inside the church, inside the body, there's problems too. We see unqualified wolves trying to shepherd, not shepherd the flock. They're trying to devour them. And so Timothy sent, he's sent to build this church up. He's sent to try to repair this church, help them, guide them back to God, help them to fix these terrible issues, these terrible things that are affecting them. And I wanted us to touch on a little bit about what Uh, early church history records about what happened to Timothy. Timothy here in Ephesus, long after this account we're reading about in Acts and in Timothy, but before Revelation, he finds a group that he's calling. He's like, come back to Christ. He's talking to a group of Ephesians, telling them, come back to Christ, repent, turn away from the sexual sin or whatever it was that they were pursuing. I think it was the account said sexual sin. And they didn't turn back to Christ. They turned back to him, picking up sticks. They beat him and left him to die, which he slowly did over the next few days. The Ephesus church existed in a harsh culture that they had to constantly keep out and with hungry wolves inside that they had to defend against. This is the world that the Ephesus church existed in. It was a hard world, and I want us to remember that as we're finally about to look at our text. The same temptations they gave into are ones that we would too and could too without God's help and without God preserving us. Standing against a wicked culture, destructive heresies, that seems like great, noble things, and yet they can still sidetrack us from our love for God, from focusing on him, we can go from resting in his protection and looking to him for protection to trying to do things on our own and looking to our own self-preservation, thinking, okay, it's all about me, and how am I going to handle this? So when we look at their church, we would agree that some of them had lost their first love. We saw that false teachers hit this church, and we'll read this in a minute, and so we'd imagine that some people maybe had fallen into these false teachings and Also, with how hard the world was to live in, we can imagine that some members in the church had finally realized, like Demas, was like, hey, it's a lot easier to be in the world than it is to be in Christ. And so they preferred the temporal over the eternal. But here we're about to read how Jesus speaks and says, for the church members who have stayed, you've lost your first love too. That's a hard word to think about. We'll talk about that later. So yes, the church has lost its primary focus, the important things. They have been deceived. 
and all their answers, because you can make a long list of things going wrong with the church. We could come up with plans and programs, but what this church simply needs is to turn back to God. And so with that said, we can finally read through our verses. So Revelation 2, 1, please. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things say he who holds the seven stars, verse 2, and his right hand who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And then verse 3, please. And you have uh, preserved and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Verse 4, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. And then verse 6, if we could go back to it. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And we'll touch on verse 7, but we're going to save that for the end. And if we could go back to verse 1, please. So that's our passage, and I want us to talk through the verses a little bit, and then we'll tie into that to the application. Verse 1 said, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things say he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. In this time, when you sent a letter to someone, you didn't leave the mystery of the author to the end. When we read the epistles from Paul, from uh, I just want to say Timothy, but that you all would be kind of shaky, and Grayson's supposed to throw rocks if he hears heresy. And I'm a good ways away, but he might have a good throw. So we're not going to find that out. But anyway, when you read epistles, when you read about James, Peter, and Paul, you do not see them saying it, waiting until the very end to say, sincerely, Paul. You find out who the author is very quick. You see it in the opening lines. And here we see it's Christ. We see it's Christ walking amongst his churches. And if you're wondering, how do I know it says churches? If you look back at chapter 1, verse 20, it says the lampstands represent the churches. Some of the symbolisms, at least, to explain to where we can understand it. And so, imagine these churches. They're going through so much persecution, so much trial, so much difficulty right now. We've talked about that a little bit. And in fact, we've just kind of really skimmed the hardship that this church faces. And Jesus starts off by saying, I'm walking among you. I know you. And imagine how comforting that must be for the church who's enduring for Jesus to say, I know. For the church who's going through trials saying, where are you? And Jesus says, I'm here. To me, that has to be comforting. And even in our own trials, is that not comforting to know? Because it's not just the church then. This word applies to us today, that as we struggle, Jesus is there. He knows their work. He knows their heart. In verse 2, we see them saying that. We see him saying that uh, here with, I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And so we see that Jesus isn't just saying, I've got some vague knowing of, I know out in Asia Minor, there's a place called Ephesus. He says he knows, and then he starts saying what he knows. He knows their works, and that's their way of life. And when we look at the context here, he knows their toil, which is how they're actively working, how they're actively working in the kingdom, how they labor to fight against the evil, as we read in the later half of verse 2. He knows their patient endurance, and that's just how they're passively resisting against the culture, against the world that's around them. And so whether they're active or passive, Jesus says, I know, and he's there. Is that not a great high priest we have? 
He says he cannot bear evil. At least it says that in the ESV. I think it's worded slightly different in the, uh, in the version that's up on the screen. But we see Christ pointing out that's all, all that is good about this church. And if you're going to rebuke someone, I think we can take a principle from here. We start off by showing what's good about them before we jump in and start pointing out their faults. That's just some extra two cents. But just like today, this church has uh, their smiling Joels, their Benny Hens, false teachers, false denominations, all sorts of rampant falseness of false Christs that are going around that they have to battle. So again, just as relevant. And I would like us to jump to verse 6. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And look again, we see Jesus speaking well. We see Jesus relating to them. They hate heresy. They hate the lies being proclaimed. And notice the context here before we jump too far into this. Notice that the members hate the works of the Nicolaitans. It doesn't say they hate the Nicolaitans. Because remember, as Christians, we don't have a place for that. At one point, we were just as lost. At one point, we were evil to, considered evil too. So... Before salvation, we were just like that. We talked about that. And if we love Christ, we should hate those things that attack his image, deceives others like evolution and so on. But, and to make that make sense, like if we love people, we hate injustice, right? It doesn't mean we hate other people. We hate injustice as being done to other people. If we love children, we hate human trafficking. If we love Jews, we hate the Holocaust. If we love real cheese, we hate American cheese. <laughs> It makes sense, right? Cool. So, can we go back to verse 3? Thank you. And Jesus continues saying, And you have preserved and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. And I think this is a verse just for us to pause and think about how astonishing this is. That endurance, that had to be hard for this church. Some of us have it hard now with the jobs we're at, with the situations we're in, with the ministries that God has assigned us. But look at how Jesus speaks to them. If there's someone who said, it could be harder or I've done worse, it would be Jesus, right? With the cross. And yet he looks to his church and says, I know, and I know it's difficult. He sympathizes with this church. He praises their persistence. And verse four is where we're gonna be in the heart of our text now. A couple weeks ago, Pastor Jimmy was talking about a sermon he had preached, and one of the interns commented about how he loved that sermon. He said something about how Jimmy referenced the Eagles had won whatever sport it is Eagles play. And I want us to be kind of like that intern right now, in that Jimmy had preached this long sermon, but he had found the meat and spit out the bones. And so as we read the text, this is the meat here. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. So imagine the, cult, cult, uh, the hostility, the culture, everything that's going on with this church inside and out. All they faced, they had been attacked with division and faints. They had defended themselves from every onslaught. But at some point, they had lost focus on what they were defending. They had become so focused on keeping out lies that at some point, the truth wasn't there either. They were a church that had been deceived. We can imagine how the love for one another had dried up. We can imagine the wild services going on that First Timothy references. But the root of all these problems was a failure to love God, and a return to God would be what fixes that. Now let's look at our next verse. That explains it a little more. Verse 5. 
Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Jesus, who walks among his churches, sees this and says, repent, or I will put your fire out. And for some of us reading this, this may seem hard. This may seem like really hard language of, Jesus, why? Why would you extinguish this church? But is it not grace that he's warning them, telling them? And let's look. We talked about what's going on at this church. Is this church being a light? The answer is that this light's already going out. Jesus is warning them to repent or it will be gone, to turn back to their first love. This is a church not being in the church. And so the church is warned. And perhaps this is a call to one of us here to repent, to turn your devotion, focus, love back to God. First, we need to recognize that forgetting your first love is simply put, that's idolatry. Whether it is yourself you find loving more, another person, place, or thing, elevating any part of creation over the creator is idolatry. And I want us to see that the world is easy to be infatuated with. Uh, can we skip ahead to Revelation 17 in the notes? And so we're going to be reading Revelation 7, chapter 17, verse 6, 7, and 8, I believe. And in it, we're going to read about John and the beast. And I know we have a lot of different understandings, the different interpretations of Revelation. But when you look at the four main interpretations of Revelation, when it comes to the beast, when it comes to the harlot, and you see this contrast going on throughout Revelation between Christ's bride and this harlot, uh, I want us to see that the beast, we see the symbolism kind of relating back to uh, the book of Daniel. We see it referring to uh, this world government and these things that the world has to offer. And so we might disagree on some of the small details of, is this a future government? Was this the Roman government? Is this some government in between? Or is this all the governments? Because those are the four main interpretations. And I'm not sharing which one mine is. You will find agreement here on the main details. And I want us to read about this, uh, these verses. And remember who's writing this. This is John. If there's a super Christian out there, it's John, right? He's the one who says in his own gospel, I'm the disciple Christ loves, right? And implying, like, what, do you, what does Jesus think about the other 11? <laughs> yeah. So let's read these verses together. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? Well, I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pent and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life when the foundation of the world, when they see the beast that was, was and is not and, is, and yet is. Sorry, I didn't expect a tongue twister there. That was fun. So got past the Dr. Seuss part. And as we look at this, again, John we call him a super Christian. And when we look at the unbelievers, when they're confronted with the beast, when they're confronted with what the world has to offer, what do they do? They marvel. Now, what about super Christian John? What does it say he's doing back in verse six? He sees the same things and he's marveling too. And so if super Christian John can fall for these things, I don't think we're gonna be exempt from it either, that those same temptations can hit us too. Ephesus and many of the other churches in Revelation, they're fighting against the world, pushing them into idolatry. And this idolatry is not exactly what you think. It's not like the world and that crazy crowd back in Acts was pushing, saying, hey, come uh, worship Artemis because Artemis is this cool. Their argument was, stop saying Jesus is Lord and you can be part of our society again. You can 
have better jobs, you can have more wealth, you can take better care of your family. That was the temptation they were facing and millions of Christians face around the world still. Because these Christians did not worship the idols of their day, they were having these things taken from them. Idolatry is not just simply believing a piece of wood's God. It can simply be affirming, Jesus is not the only way. Jesus' commands are not the only ones I believe. Jesus is not my only master. It's trading devotion to God for easier living. It's leaving your first love behind. When you sacrifice your obedience to Christ, you're sacrificing your love to God because that's how we show our love for God and our devotion and our following him and us picking up our cross. And so are you picking up your cross or are you hiding it? Another vast group who tries to pull our love away from God are the false teachers. We cannot get a lot of definites from 1 Timothy about what, the first te- uh, what these false teachers preached, but we know what their fruits were. It was division, disobedience. It was division pulling Christians from loving one another. It was division pulling Christians from seeking after in their relationship to God as much as they could tear that away anyway. And so we should practice discernment with those we listen to because there's this really cool fun fact that says if a preacher says one thing and the Bible says another, the preacher's always wrong. It always works that way. And perhaps you're new to Christianity, you're new to faith, you're trying to figure out, well, who else do I listen to? Maybe you want more teachers, want more than Caleb or something. And so when Jimmy's quoting Tim Keller, when Jimmy's quoting, or Pastor Jimmy's show honor to those who honors do, when Pastor Jimmy's uh, referencing these different people, write their names down. That's how I started building up a library of who to listen to, who to follow. I would hear them say that. I would hear MacArthur say that. And so I'd look back up on these people. And so if you're new to this, now, Jimmy, who's a great teacher, is going to quote other great teachers too. And so you can build that way too. Also, another way that we may not think of idolatry, looking back to what happened to the Ephesus church as they were fighting to keep heresies out, is that they were elevating other issues above the gospel. There are other great, real, genuine needs that command our attention, demand our attention, and our hearts hurt for those because God cares about those things too. But we can try to go come to these issues by setting aside the gospel and trying to pick up other tools to fix these issues. And that's been throughout the history, but no matter what issues are going on, the issue's solved through the gospel, not by going around it or some other way. Only the gospel heals division and brings peace. Racism, greed, whatever issue you want to put in the blank between one uh, is not an issue that's primarily a relationship issue between this person and this person. The main issue in these things shows the relationship issue between this person and God. Uh, we're, we've been talking about John, and we, John calls himself or writes about himself as, or we refer to John as the, gospel, uh, the apostle of love, right? We're familiar with that, aren't we? If not, we're familiar with it now, that John's the apostle of love. That's important to know for this, the, uh, the detail of this. But uh, there's this account in the Gospels where John and his brother are walking with Jesus through Samaria. And remember the Jews, they hated Samaria. And John's like, hey, Jesus, if you just give me the words, I will call down fire on this village. And so John, with just this thumbs up from Jesus or the enablement from Jesus says, you know, if you just give me the ability to, I will be a mass murderer. I will kill all these men, women, and children. That's where we find John in the Gospels at one point. And then later on in Acts, where do we find John? We find him in Acts witnessing to the Samaritans, so to the Samaritans, sharing the gospel with them. It's amazing what the resurrection and what new life does. Um, 
So fixing societal issues that anger us, it's not done in place of sharing the gospel. It's done through sharing the gospel. And I think we have enough time for me to do it real quick. But in Nashville, there was this hideous, atrocious statue that was set up for the wall. It was to a, dedicated to a man named Nathan Bedford Forrest. I think it was supposed to look like him, but it looks more like my nightmares, so I don't know. <laughs> but uh, he was a KKK general. He was, I mean, he was a Confederate general, KKK leader. Uh, he sold slaves for a living. Uh, someone wrote about him saying he found, every, he found a sin for every hour. He lived a rough life. And I saw a news article referencing about how after the war, he was just a, later on after the war, he was just a different person. So I dug in and dug some, done some research to try to find out more about this person. Uh, but this guy's an evil man. And an essay I read, the person wrote saying, if, Nathan, uh, if Paul knew about Nathan, Paul would have hesitated before he called himself the chief of sinners. So... That, I hope, gives you perspective of this man for us to kind of run through this background. But Nathan's wife, she knew Nathan's real problem. He needed the gospel. And so after pleading years after years, she finally has him attend church. And from what I understand, this was just a small congregation, but at the end of this small church meeting, he comes up weeping to the pastor to say, I am the man who built his house on sand. And after meeting Christ, after seeing the sins in his life and being made aware of them. Where do we find Nathan Bedford Forrest in history? Not at the KKK rallies anymore. We find him at the civil rights rallies, saying that he will be a servant to all there. Those he sold as slaves at one point, he now comes to saying, I will be a servant. Christ had made him a servant to them. We may be familiar with the story of the Moravian slaves. Preston, you need five minutes, right? Or how long do you need? 15. Okay, so I'm sorry, guys. We're skipping that one. <laughs> so uh, let's go to verse 7. Verse 7 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give him to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Which, for a long time, I'd wondered if Jimmy uh, had these verses memorized, where he would start reading them before they were on screen. And now I understand that they're also just on the bottom of the screen that you all can't see. So... I thought he had a superpower, but I've been hurt a little bit. So, did this, uh, did this church repent? Early church history says yes, they did. And does that mean that the persecution, all these troubles they were going through, got better afterwards? No. But their love for God had made them conquerors, as we read in that verse. Polycarp, the pastor of Ephesus, of the Ephesus church, was captured by the emperor cult, and he was ordered to simply state, State Caesar was Lord of Lords, King of Kings. Polycarp didn't have to believe that to say that, but all he had to do was say that. But Polycarp chose to burn. He felt it better to be a light to the light, or he felt it better to be a light to the lost than to deny his Lord of Lords and King of Kings. This church had found their first love again. You can't live attempting to love your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and say anyone else is master of your life. And on this side of eternity, we're not going to have that perfect love for God. Not for a single moment of time are we going to love our Lord, our God, with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind. It's why we need a mediator. It's why we need Christ. But we can ask ourselves, are we, is God second to anything else in our life? Whatever noun you want to put there. And for those, and let's do not forget why we love. As, Paul, as John wrote elsewhere, we love because he first loved us. Now, I want us to go back to Revelation 1.8, please. 
And to the angel, oh, 1-8, please. I also found out I'm difficult to work with, so I apologize. <laughs> and so we see it written, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I'm sorry, I wrote 1-8 in the verse, but it's 1-7. <laughs> I'm going to look it up in my phone. I have two minutes left, so we can get done with this. Right, no, they've got it up there, but I'm telling them the wrong verses. This is all my fault. <laughs> it's probably even in the slide that you put together. I just sourced it wrong. But it is in Revelation 1. Oh, well, we're going to ad-lib this verse in second service gets it. But in the verse, and you look, it's the one that's talking about how uh, Christ is coming and those who, like the ones who had pierced him, are going to be welling. And, oh, there it is. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, and even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. And so do not be one of those who will well. Roman soldiers apathetically nailed God to the cross, and this is the result of their apathy towards the only one who offers salvation. And so if there's anyone here who knows they're not saved, that Christ has not washed your sins away, do not look on him in apathy like many have. Turn to him. Repent.